virtually all countries that have suffered under this kind of rule, that there is an immense outpouring of solidarity and support for Ukraine. The number of refugees has increased dramatically over the past 10 days now. And the police greet uh, people coming into the country that we have border checks now that we have this problem. And the police give all the kids stuffed toys and candy. I mean, this is not a government policy. They do this on their own. I mean, this is the kind of thing that is quite amazing to see. Tumas Hendrik Ilves was president of Estonia from 2006 to 2016, the Baltic country's third head of state since recovering its independence from the Soviet Union in 1991. Prior to that, Ilves served two stints as Estonia's foreign minister and one as Estonia's ambassador to the United States. He was also a member of European Parliament. Before going into politics, Ilves was a journalist based in Germany in the 1980s as a reporter for Radio Free Europe. I'm Andrew Muller and I spoke to President Ilves for the big interview. President Tumas Hendrik Ilves, welcome to the big interview. We should start by looking at current events. Does Russia's invasion of Ukraine feel to you like something of a we-told-you-so moment for the Baltic states? Well, I would say it's been uh, that for uh, most countries of Eastern Europe, in fact, not merely the Baltic states. And I've been annoying some people simply by recalling their statements in the past. But it is true that there's been a major divide for at least 20 years, even before Putin's ascent between this uh, kumbaya approach of Western Europe and the warnings of Eastern Europe. And usually it meant uh, being Eastern Europeans, and especially the Baltic states being called paranoid, unrealistic, and so forth, not taking into account that the treatment of these countries was very different from the kind of smarmy, um, uh, psychophantic attitudes uh, displayed by Russia toward the West Europeans. I mean, it's very much a part of this uh, this narrative that was exposed by Sergei Lavrov about, right after New Year's. He said, criticizing the new members of the European, well, of the European Union, but more importantly of NATO, was translated as the countries of the former Warsaw Pact left orphaned by the collapse of the Soviet Union. That was like a polite translation. What he said actually in Russian was, left without a master. And if you, uh, if you recall, George Kennan in 1946, 47, wrote, uh, uh, neighbors of Russia can only be vassals or enemies. The loss of vassal status combined with this master, you know, left without masters, I think sums up very much the uh, what all of these countries toward the east, well, east of the order, have had to deal with for, for 20 years, even more. I mean, just arrogant, overbearing, boorish behavior that was fairly well masked, as I said, in the psychophantic behavior of uh, Russian diplomats towards Germany, mm. France, the UK, and in fact, the United States. 
But this, this, what you described as a, a, a kumbaya approach to Russia in, in, the, in the post-Cold War years, where do you think that came from? Was it just naivety on the part of the West, this idea that, you know, if, if everywhere else in Central and Eastern Europe could be absorbed into what we think of as, I guess, Western Europe, then Russia's really no different? Russia's just another European country? Is that a misapprehension, do you think? Well, I think it was wishful thinking. It was too strong a belief that all that was going on was simply, you know, sort of Marxism-Leninism. And as soon as mm. you, and as soon as you get rid of Marxism-Leninism and have capitalism, all things will be great. And instead, uh, what you got was sort of a decommunized sort of Russian national socialism. I mean, down to even having symbols like mm. the current Z, which is being displayed in all kinds of very fascist forms. If you look at YouTube with like these crowds of Russians uh, doing various sort of organized choreographed uh, stances uh, with black Z t-shirts. I mean, mm. basically half a swastika. I, I did want to go back uh, in your career a bit before you became president, and you did two stints of as Minister of Foreign Affairs for Estonia. And if I've if I've done the maths right, you would have overlapped with uh, Yevgeny Primakov and Igor Ivanov in Russia at that time. What kind of relationship were you able to have back then? Did did you feel like they took Estonia seriously as a sovereign state? No, especially not Yevgeny Primakov, who was. Uh as boorish KGB thug as the best of them. The only foreign minister that I would say that, and who was really outstanding, unfortunately living in Florida today, but the only one who really would rank up there among the best of foreign ministers in sort of savvy and intelligence uh, reading, as well as sort of polite personal style was Andrei Kozarev who just last week tweeted out his advices for everyone to resign from the Russian foreign ministry if they want to preserve their honor. Just going back to that time, though, and talking to, to Primakov in particular, did you get the sense that the Russians even then regarded the fact of the Baltic states' independence as a sort of temporary inconvenience and something they intended to do something about eventually? It was very much veiled, though I recall a concrete example when we were conducting our border negotiations for a border treaty in 1994-95. And this was, uh, I mean, we still don't have a border treaty, but in any case, but the negotiations, part of the negotiations was a sub-treaty on uh, simplified border crossing procedures, which is fairly standard that people who live near a border have, it's easier for them to cross back and forth. So my suggestion to the negotiating team was to take the Finnish-Russian simplified border crossing regime and then use the replace function on the computer and this uh, put Estonia everywhere where it says Finland. And so they did that. They made that suggestion. And uh, Sviri, Ambassador Svirin, their negotiator, looked suddenly very stern and said, you are not Finland you will never be Finland. We will never treat you like Finland, which was kind of to take people aback. But I think that's, uh, that's indicative of the same kind of notion of we are the masters and you are the vassals. 
approach and you know don't even think that we will treat you as an equal i mean you you will have noticed the last couple of weeks there's been an amount of suggestion from people that maybe if we wind back to the early 90s we should have deferred to this sensibility of russia let them have some sort of buffer zone this suggestion is always of course made by people who would not have had to live in such a buffer zone themselves. Was was that ever discussed, the idea of a sort of Finlandization for the Baltic states, or were you always determined on membership of NATO and the EU? Well, we were determined to join NATO, and I was the one as foreign minister and came in and said, you're not going to get into NATO until you're well on your way in getting into the European Union, because countries like Germany, France, and the UK and Italy would veto any application to NATO on our part, but would not be able to do so were we members of the European Union. This idea then that that Russia's entitled to a backyard, to a a sphere of influence. Do do you think there is any prospect of one day talking a future Russian regime out of that? I I guess the ideal scenario that the Baltic states might end up envisaging is the relationship that the Benelux countries now have with Germany. Does Does that strike you as something that could ever possibly happen? If the Russians do Vergangenheitsbewältigung, yes. But I mean, this is not going, this is not simply a Russian attitude. I mean, I just mm. recall that uh, as late as November, Samuel Sharap in the United States was saying, well, we'll just have to make the Ukrainians take a bad deal. We will have to make them take. Uh, I mean, this attitude, well, we're going to just sort of move these countries around and we'll decide for them. It's not simply a Russian attitude. I mean, it's very much present in the, uh, or has been very much present in uh, Germany and in France, in some sense, even in places like Finland, sort of knowing better. I mean, I recall how in 1997, the Finns took it upon themselves to torpedo a um, Estonian U.S. military exercise because they didn't think it would be good for us. So, I mean, we have the, there's a long history of, uh, of this kind of arrogance. It's much harder to do with Estonia today being more advanced than many of the countries that want to decide for us, but that's a different matter. But the thing to keep in mind is this is not simply a Russian attitude. It is very much or has been very much an attitude on the part of Western European EU members, as well as uh, at least um, in segments of the United States. This is something that you might have an unusual perspective on, having you know, been raised substantially in the United States before being able to return to Estonia. Is, is it just that big countries see the world in a very different way to small countries? It's part of that, yes. Well, it was always, I mean, back before I became known, it was quite humorous since my accent made people think I was just part of the usual American scene and and I was just taking it all in uh, not and they did not realize that I was <laughs> one of the one of the wogs and untermensch that they were talking about <laughs> I must admit that it has been it has been quite disheartening to see this kind of attitude especially among the people espousing realpolitik so-called realists in foreign policy who basically continued to get it wrong, you know? I mean, 
I was once called out when uh, many, many years ago, I guess 1989, I was called out by uh, when I was director of the Estonian service at Radio Free Europe. And mm. I was told well, someone wanted to see me from the German government. So I went downstairs to meet with this fellow from the uh, Bundesnachrichtendienst or the German Foreign Intelligence Agency, who started yelling and screaming and slamming his hand on the table about how we Estonians must stop this ridiculous independence project of ours. I could and probably should write all of this up sometime, just to name and shame. <laughs> um, going back to that period, though, um, before you were able to return to Estonia, how important... Uh, a thing to you was a sense of Estonian identity? Because I, I've always noticed that people who live in away from where they grew up, whether voluntarily or involuntarily, often tend to uh, think about and cleave to that national identity a lot more profoundly than th the people who get to live there. That may be true of many, but for me, uh, the, the identity part was fairly secondary. I grew up with about as uh, classical a liberal education as is possible, and the, the Soviet Union's destruction of fundamental liberal democratic rights principles was really what drove me to these issues. I'm more, I, I applied those things to the, the case where I knew the language inside out. But I mean, it, it was a kind of a, it was indeed a fundamental position of mine all along. And this it is not that it was particularly Estonian that, well, that drove me to it. And I think that's a, uh, for me, that has been far, far more important. I, I want to talk a bit about the, the, the period in which a, a career in Estonian politics and indeed a career to the top of Estonian politics uh, started to look like it might be a possibility. Um, can you recall a time when it actually dawned on you properly that it was not at all impossible that you were going to end up being your country's head of state? That, I've, that's always just struck me as what must be a, an incredibly strange moment for people. Well, basically everything I've had, every position I've had in Estonia, beginning with ambassador, foreign minister, and ultimately president was was uh, never planned. And in many ways uh, kind of went against rational thinking. So uh, <laughs> I was first invited by the president, the first democratically elected president to become the first ambassador to Washington after the war. And it was, filled with really personal difficulty to, to, to do that. And then I was called back to be foreign minister and that too was uh, really tough because I had to cut short what I was doing. And then when the kind of uh, centrist parties in Estonia came to me and asked me to run for president because their opinion polls showed that I had the best chances I told them, I don't want to be president. And they told me, don't worry, you won't win anyway. <laughs> so uh, basically, every one of those was, a, uh, was an unexpected uh, step. None of it was planned. So I never foresaw any kind of career. Is it possible, though, to explain what it does feel like at that moment at which unplanned, unexpected, though it may have been, 
you are actually president. You you have to get your head around the fact that this has happened. Yeah, you go, oh shit, and then <laughs> um, and then uh, then you think, okay, well now I have to put into practice all the things that I have believed in, and I guess I was lucky in that unlike all too many people who have sought to be in positions of higher office, you know, I didn't really think much of the trappings and say, oh, I'm president, uh, which, uh, or I'm foreign minister, even if I'm ambassador. I mean, at all of those levels, I've met all kinds of folks, not only from my own country, but who are, who think that being called your excellency actually means you're excellent. <laughs> We were talking earlier about the time that you were foreign minister and the contacts that you were able to have with your Russian opposite numbers. Um, as president of Estonia, were you able to have any direct um, conversations, interactions with the Russian equivalents at the time? I know part of this period was when uh, Dmitry Medvedev was pretending to be president while, while Putin was prime minister. Dmitry Medvedev since shortly after I became president during Putin's time, uh, we were faced with a massive attack on Estonia, mm. cyber attack. And then most of the time after uh, Medvedev, I we were cleaning up from um, Crimea. That cyber attack in 2007 does now seem like, well, it seemed at the time a significant moment. It seems in retrospect from where we are now, an even more significant one. Do you think there is a like a parallel timeline in which the world takes a much tougher line on Russia in 2007, perhaps akin to the line the world is taking on Russia now? If, if a fraction of that un action had been undertaken 15 years ago, do you think things might be substantially different today? Well, it's very hard to play alternative history. Mm. I should merely mention that we were utterly, we were completely dismissed at NATO about these cyber attacks by large countries that at the time, when we already were the most digitized country in Europe, but at the mm. time wouldn't know the difference between a toaster and a computer. And so it was kind of annoying to, to say the least that people who knew nothing, nothing at all about cyber, were telling us that, oh, you're just being Russophobic. I mean, fortunately countries, I mean, countries that are more digitally sophisticated, uh, at least on the uh, security side, such as the US with this NSA and the UK with GCHQ had a far better understanding of what was going on than some of these other large countries. Do you get the sense that those countries are now perhaps a bit more willing to listen to Estonia and the other two Baltic states than they might have been at the time? Well, it's only been since the 24th of February, mm. so we have to see. I mean, the 24th of February represents the end of the post-Cold War era, which began somewhere, you know, you want to date it at 80, in 89 or 91, but somewhere in there of which the last 15 to 20 years has been one on the part of many Western countries of basically dismissing all of the evidence to the contrary and maintaining, maintaining policies that clearly were being exploited and did not work. Granted that it's early days, but if it is the case that maybe the rest of the world or the rest of the EU and NATO has decided to start listening to the Baltic states, what would you advise them from here? 
Well, the first thing is not to jump right back in if there's the slight change. I mean, because I think, I personally don't think that things are going to change that quickly, but say they do, for example, I think the urge and the incredible need to restore their kumbaya reputations is immediately to drop all sanctions and say, okay, now we're back to the wonderful Russia that was, which really, if you think about it, consists of what Russia has been for 20 years. What would I say? I would say that do not do not ever again become so energy dependent. I mean, let's recall when Germany started its gas pipeline, it was Ronald Reagan was the one telling them not to do it, and they did it anyway. And for all these years, we have heard from Helmut Schmidt on, we have heard from successive Bundeskanzlers that, oh, no, they always, they always deliver their gas, except they didn't deliver their gas to Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania in 1991 because they didn't like the fact that we were independent, which is another data point for while everyone was going all gaga over how wonderful it was that communism is over. Russia continued to behave in a really, in a really nasty way, regardless of having outlawed the Communist Party. When you look at the measures that have been imposed against Russia in the last couple of weeks, though, and they are absolutely extraordinary, and we don't know yet the full extent it's going to have on Russia's economy and Russian society, is there any part of you that's worried that the West may be overcompensating somewhat, that they may have overdone this? Because there is a commonality through history that people in times of extraordinary duress, especially if their government can sell it to them, that this has been imposed on you from outside, will tend to actually rally around their flag and rally around their leaders rather than blaming their leaders for it. As long as they're committing war crimes, no. We see really massive major war crimes being committed uh, right now. And uh, there is no, I don't think there is such a thing as overdoing it when it comes to dealing with the horrible actions of the Russian army right now. Going back to where you are now uh, in Estonia and the Baltic states membership of NATO and the EU notwithstanding, are you concerned that Russia is, is any threat to any of those countries? I mean, Russia has been an existential threat for the for this area for about a thousand years. So I say often uh, when when talking about some of the steps we've done to bolster our cybersecurity that in the past thousand years we get uh, we have on average been invaded twice a century. So it'll be a while before we see a different trend. Just looking at the data points. <laughs> But there's a there's a corollary to the same question about whether you're concerned that these extraordinarily stringent measures imposed on Russia may actually make it more likely uh, that Putin does something desperate and dangerous, like, for example, uh, attack a NATO territory, if he feels like he has no choice but to just flip the table over and see what happens. Well, then we're all in trouble, aren't we? <laughs> I mean, is, is the only way forward from here, do you think, that Russia is squeezed so hard that the regime collapses, which is, I guess, a kind of a, a table-flipping exercise by the West? No, I mean, I mean, leaving aside the psychological difficulties of 
admitting you screwed up. I mean, all you have to do is pull back your troops, say we're sorry, and um, and I would argue deliver yourself to the Hague. But uh, but basically, you could. I mean, there is an off ramp. You just simply stop doing this and pull out. All of the discussion of off ramps is again this kind of concern that well, we have to preserve Putin's pride, and that comes at the expense of hundreds of daily deaths in Ukraine. Do you think this is just about one man, though? Is, uh, what, what's your sense of what is going on around him? Well, yes and no. I mean, first of all, it's clearly, the, clearly there's a megalomaniacal person with a huge amount of power who can get these things done. On the other hand, you know, this, against the rhetoric of, or rather the, the position that, oh, well, it's not the Russians, it's just Putin, I mean, the amount of mass support for Putin, the people sporting the Z, their half swastika, is quite astounding. And even outside Russia, you see these cars with Zs tap taped onto their windows. I mean, that indicates that people there's, there is quite a bit of support for these things. Um, I, I just want to return uh to your, your stint as president of Estonia. And it's a, it's a question I'm often interested in asking people who have led a particular country, which is what you learn about a country and about its people from having led it for any particular period. Was there any aspect of it that, that surprised you, taught you something you didn't know about Estonia? The resilience of, of Estonians uh, and the solidarity they have shown to... Um, say, for example, in 2008, when Georgia was invaded, or 2014, and especially now, has been uh, truly uh, sort of, I mean, I don't know, positive, what else can I say? Uh, I mean, uh, as a country, we have, we have donated uh, 200 million euros worth of equipment and aid to Ukraine for a country of 1.3 million. That's an incredible amount. The amount of money donated by ordinary Estonians to various relief efforts, again, is astounding. Uh, so there is a strong set of solid, a sense of solidarity here. I mean, I mean this is repeated across the region. Uh, uh, you see that in virtually all countries that have suffered under this kind of rule, that there is a an immense outpouring of solidarity and support for Ukraine. Um, you know, when, they, when, they, when the refugees, which have been sort of dramatically, the number of refugees has increased dramatically over the past uh, 10 days now. And the police greet uh, people coming into the country. At, we have uh, sort of border checks now that uh, we have this problem. We, we, and the police give all the kids stuffed toys and candy. I mean, this is not a government policy. They do this on their own. I mean, this is the kind of thing that is quite, uh, quite amazing to see. President Tumas Hendrik Ilves, thank you very much for joining me on The Big Interview on Monocle 24. That's it for this edition of The Big Interview. It was produced by Emma Searle and edited by Steph Chungu. From me, Andrew Muller, thanks very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye.